You're listening to the Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Get ready to be inspired as we explore provocative topics surrounding innovative technologies and ideas with top industry professionals, digital entrepreneurs, and provocateurs. At Impetus Digital, we believe that everything starts with a conversation. We aspire to act as the bridge to not only ignite these courageous conversations, but to also sustain them over time. We do this through our Insight platform, which features our award-winning Insight events and Insight Touchpoint solutions, and through these fireside chats. In the end, our hope is to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Natalie Eden. CEO and co-founder of Impetus Digital, an all-in-one, fully-serviced virtual collaboration and communication solution for online meetings, events, conferences, and advisory boards for life science companies. Hi, everybody. My name is Natalie Yeadon. I'm the CEO and co-founder with Impetus Digital. Invitus Digital has built some of the best in class, asynchronous and synchronous virtual collaboration and communication tools. We've worked with pharma companies, life science companies from across the globe over the last 13 years to help them build out virtual advisory boards, steering committees, investigator groups, medical education. And with the recent launch of our Insight Events platform, we've been helping companies with hackathons, internal corporate meetings, sales training, and all kinds of other fun things. But more importantly, at Impetus, we really believe that everything starts with a conversation. And from these big, hairy, audacious conversations with some of the leading edge thinkers, leading edge technology, thought entrepreneurs, we can all work together to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. And we can't just start with a conversation. We need to sustain them. This is precisely the reason we have built uh, the series of asynchronous and synchronous touch points through, the eight, through our platform so we can continue these discussions. We can build momentum, we can push the agenda forward on new policies, new legislation, new ideas, and we can all create the serendipity of random collisions. So I'm really thrilled to have somebody at the table to, today with me, and this is actually Tom Lowry. He actually serves as the National Director of Artificial Intelligence for Health and Life Sciences at Microsoft. And we've been hearing a lot about Microsoft lately and they've been doing an amazing job and delving really deeply in the healthcare space. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have Tom with me today. He previously served as the Director of Worldwide Health. Um, And in his current role, role, uh, Tom works with providers, payers, all sorts of life science organizations, basically planning and implementing all sorts of innovative analytical solutions that are going to help with the quality and efficiency of health services delivered really literally across the globe. So Tom focuses on strategies for digital transformation, which is applied to performance optimization. This includes artificial intelligence, machine learning, as well as all kinds of cognitive services. Prior to Microsoft, Tom served as a senior director at GE Health, healthcare with a global responsibilities for revenue cycle management analytics and operational performance solutions. He was also the founder of a, and the CEO of a company called Veris. Uh, this was a healthcare software company and it has served in various, he's also served in various executive management roles in hospitals and integrated delivery networks. 
He also has published numerous articles as well as a fantastic book called AI in Health. We're going to be discussing which, where he's actually discussing the use of technology to innovate healthcare. So an incredible background. So happy to have you, Tom. Thanks for being on the show. Well, Natalie, thanks for having me. I, I think you left out the paper out I had when I was 14, but um, thank you for running down that list of all the things I've done. Or as my mom used to say, I just can't keep a job. <laughs> I just want to say what an incredible uh, background and um, so many great things that have happened. GE Health, being at Microsoft and being the, the leader and the CEO in the, of a startup, Veris, you've learned all kinds of things. How did you land in the place that you are today? Well, it's a long journey as you've just outlined. So, you know, more than anything, uh, I've always been one of those people that from a, a skill basis, uh, I was never the best at anything, but the one thing that I guess has always driven me forward is I've got this perpetual curiosity. So you, you look at things like artificial intelligence and, you know, back when uh, I, I did my uh, first startup, it was all around uh, essentially hosted software. We hadn't invented the term cloud yet, but a lot of it was just looking at the way things worked, being curious about things like, um, you know, artificial intelligence or then the, the growing nature of this thing called the internet and, and web protocols and looking at how you take these emerging technologies and use them to start solving problems that previously were either unsolvable or they were much harder to solve because you didn't have those technologies and those avenues available. So I've always been one of those people that's curious and, and somehow I, I start looking at uh, how to apply the technology to really innovate the way anything, particularly in health and medicine works. I absolutely love that because I was started off our conversation by saying everything starts with a conversation but prior to that, you sort of hit that right on the head, which is really everything starts with a question. So I love the fact that you really have, you know, have a flourishing career and all the things that you've contributed really because you've had a curious mind. I'm thrilled yeah, okay. as well to, sorry, go ahead, please. No, no, I was going to say, if you're talking about that. So, you know, obviously I love data numbers, but I'm also kind of a, a, a student of words. And to your point, you know, one of the most interesting words in the English language anyway is the simple word of why, because, you know, if I say why, uh, many times the first thing one thinks is a question, which it is, um, but it's also a declaration of why we should do things. So I, I look at, you know, problem solving, I look at the creative use of data and AI, and it's the, you know, why should we do it? And we can talk for at least an hour about the challenges in healthcare and life sciences, and then it becomes the declarative say there's so many opportunities to take what we care about in health and medicine and life science and make it better. So what came first, the, the role at Microsoft or the book that you wrote called Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare, A Leader's Guide to Winning in the New Age of Intelligent Health Systems? Well, what again, preceded thank, yeah. the other and why? Well, first of all, thanks for the shout out on the book. Uh, yeah. Um, so there's a, a very large healthcare IT organization in the world called HIMSS. Um, and essentially they are an association representing healthcare uh, IT professionals. So they came to me, it was probably two years ago now, my book was published uh, a year ago uh, this past March, but essentially they came to me and said, look, we've got dozens of books on the technical side, the programming, uh, programming side of artificial intelligence. We really don't have anything when it comes to helping 
non-programmers, non-technical people who are clinical leaders, who are running hospitals or running divisions within pharma orgs to really understand what it is, but more importantly, how they need to understand not only what it is, but how to apply it to be better at whatever they did. So you're a product developer, you're a data scientist that already knows a lot about the programming side, but so much of driving value with artificial intelligence is less about the technology, less about the algorithm, and a lot more about understanding things like clinical and operational workflow, understanding that in order to do uh, true things like uh, predictive capabilities, you have to do a better job of creating what I call a modern data estate. So it was a book written about all those things that the technology is dependent on when it comes to driving value at scale. Yeah, brilliant. And in such a needed book. I, you know, I, th I think the first thing that comes to many people's mind is we've known Microsoft for eons. It's It's been one of those iconic companies. It's been around forever. It's always been one of those epic companies that has always done well. We've heard recently of some of the fantastic uh, work that's been happening with teams and, and since COVID-19, this acceleration of growth. But we've always considered Microsoft more of like a company that did like, you know, PowerPoint and Excel and, you know, those sorts of business operations. How do you get people to Get people's head around Microsoft getting into healthcare? What does that look like? Yeah. Well, it's a great question. And, and so, you know, backing up, uh, there are a lot of things that uh, when you look at the evolution of technology, we not only were part of it, but we, we drove a lot of those things through the last several decades. Uh, you know, probably the pivot point for Microsoft came with, with uh, tr the true advent of the cloud and, and everyone moving in that direction for any of many, many reasons when it comes to true transformation, use of data. Uh, and, and then part of that was backed up by uh, what, you know, Satya Nadella is no longer our new leader, but uh, Satya coming in had uh, a dramatic effect on shifting not only the strategy, but the culture of the organization. So, so then leading up to your question of healthcare, um, we serve many verticals and, and our, our primary focus as a company is to develop uh, the best world leading uh, transformational technology that then gets applied across all segments. So banking, retail, finance, and healthcare. Um, but increasingly, as we look ahead, uh, there are certain verticals that are important to us and uh, none more important than health and medicine. So within that, our approach is there are a few things that we are doing that would be considered first party. So for example, uh, we just announced last month the uh, intention to acquire a great company called Nuance. Nuance is leading the way when it comes to conversational AI in health and medicine. Much of that is based on some underlying technology Microsoft actually created at Microsoft Research. So we have certain instances like that but the majority of time when it comes to our position in healthcare comes not from being first party, but by working with the best vendors of, of all those things you imagine uh, that are used by providers and payers in life science. You know, organizations like uh, the best electronic medical record providers, the best in imaging, the best in uh, technology for managing uh, clinical drug research. And what happens there is, um, you know, 
we help them become more intelligent. So going forward, the idea is if we were to walk through a hospital in a couple of years and we were to say, let's pop the hood on what's happening with the electronic medical record, with the imaging systems, with registration, any of the intelligence that's really going through those systems when you look at what's underneath are really the Microsoft components of data, AI, uh, the Microsoft cloud for health. So our, our job is to really take those who do the best at something, make them better by making those things more intelligent and, and increasingly more cloud-driven. I love how succinctly that you put that and that that is just brilliant. It's sort of like adding the technicolor, if you will, to the black and white picture. And I'm just curious as well, Tom, there's the world prior to COVID and then there's the world afterwards. We've seen the surge and the groundswell and the tailwinds <clears throat> that have propelled so many tech stocks, tech companies, you know, we're kind of in a, in a bit of a bumpy road, but that's besides the point. But there's just been this an acceleration of digital adoption. Mm-hmm. What did people's adoption of Microsoft Cloud for Healthcare look and feel in, health, in healthcare, in institutions, in physician offices? And what does it look like today? What is the, the, the proclivity for inviting it, for, for entertaining it and, and being open to changing and adopting it? Another great question. You know, I start by saying, and our, our CEO said it first, where you know, he basically reflected on how, while everyone talks about digital transformation, we saw years worth of digital transformation occur in a matter of months due to COVID. So, you know, relative to healthcare, uh, we, we saw a lot of challenging things, but we learned a lot of lessons. The first lesson I would point out is that uh, because of COVID, we demonstrated that healthcare is capable of agile transformation. I mean, many times uh, healthcare and health and medicine is seen as moving at glacial speed when it comes to innovation. But again, uh, heroic uh, efforts by clinicians, doctors, nurses, healthcare executives. I mean, think about the tremendous speed where a year ago, people thought it'd be impossible to have a vaccine. And here we are a year later and it was done. So, so uh, COVID drove a lot of things, including it, it proved agile transformation is possible. Two, it also showed that uh, AI can produce um, great value uh, and, and basically have a short time to value. So a quick example, um, a year ago when COVID was first really roaring into America and everyone was trying to get their uh, hands around what to do, um, Microsoft already had a health grade uh, bot that, that allowed us to you know, do um, you know, secure and compliant uh, things with a bot. So we quickly uh, converted that uh, into a COVID uh, bot or a coronavirus bot, made it publicly available. Groups like CDC and hospitals around the world adopted it. It was used by tens of millions of consumers to basically have an avenue to go out, uh, walk through a triage of what they were experiencing and their family members experiencing, and then that would lead to recommendations on what to do. You're okay for now. Go to your provider immediately. So that one thing alone, when you think about consumers or think about tens of millions of people around the world having access to that whenever they wanted, you can only imagine if those were people you know, calling into a phone bank that was staffed by humans, what would that have looked like? And chances are, you know, it, it just, it wouldn't have ever happened. So it's one of many examples to say the technology 
in the hands of creative people who are trying to find ways of truly innovating. And particularly, you know, there's an old uh, adage that a mentor of mine used to put out of, when you feel the heat, you see the light. And, and we saw tremendous efforts by health and medical leaders to basically rework the way things were done to accommodate patients, to get care delivered. And it was mainly on, on you know, writing on the technology that we and others provide. You're hearing a lot about people wanting to go back to the new normal, and there's tons of reasons for that. And you're, you're seeing things opening up and the demasking and all sorts of things. And there's also this discussion of, you know, telemedicine might get put by the wayside, you know, in real life is, you know, an IRL is, is going to be the way moving forward. What is the prediction that Microsoft has about some of the inroads that you've already made on telemedicine, on some of the chat bots, some of the, the investments that you made with nuance and sort of the new, um, I, I guess, talk technologies that are really going to make uh, gigantic uh, changes with how healthcare is going to be diagnosed, you know, and conditions yeah. are going to be diagnosed and monitored. Yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, at, at some level, what I'd say is, um, you know, that genie is not going back in the bottle anytime soon. Uh, it's interesting because we are seeing um, a number of things happen. So when uh, COVID hit and everyone swung around to telemedicine, it worked well. And you look at the stats of any provider organization last year, and they went from, you know, maybe piloting some things to thousands and thousands of virtual visits, and it worked. Um, there is a little bit of a how do we hold the gains uh, question going on now. Some of it is legitimate. Uh, you know, there are certain things that, for example, um, there are certain things that are ideal for a telemedicine visit. There are certain other things that really, you know, having that face-to-face -face contact between a patient and a provider is, is truly uh, critical to the quality and, and understanding what to do. Um, you know, beyond that, we're, um, you know, we're also seeing that uh, COVID and telemedicine is starting to really open things up for thinking where, you know, there's telemedicine, uh, then, then there's more of the virtual visits. And then there is uh, increasingly in the United States, something called hospital at home, which is basically looking at what has previously been done in a hospital being done in the home. And so there's this continuum that is starting to be created. And, and to me, long-term, what that really looks like is, again, back to what I write in the book about the emergence of intelligent health systems. Eventually, you know, those who get this figured out and get it figured out first using the technology in the cloud are really gonna be the purveyors of what I would call care anywhere. So if you're a consumer and you have the choice of, of doing things uh, that are more convenient for you, equally effective, you're gonna choose that over someone doing the traditional thing of looking you in the eye and saying, I'm gonna put you in the hospital, I'm gonna put you between the sheets, when in fact there are certain types of cases where going forward that doesn't need to happen. Um, you know, finally, just even taking that one step farther, um, you know, back to things like life science that you were mentioning early and, and the markets you serve, uh, I, I'm very impressed with things like, so if you look at work being done by people like Dr. Eric Topol and the Scripps Research Institute, which to me, they're leading the way in digital clinical trials. So you look at the traditional way clinical trials work and you've got humans and you've got all these things that you have to bring together and monitor and manage. And then you look at the work they're doing in digital clinical trials to make that much more agile, to frankly make it much more inclusive when it comes to trying to develop that 
that population uh, that you're running through the trial and having them balance on, you know, all those things that a good study needs to involve. And, and so I look at those things, much of which is driven by technology and uh, intelligence. So, so in the hands of, of smart people who know those processes now, those are the people who are gonna be driving that change going forward. So on that note, I mean, a big fan of Eric Topol's books as well. Um, the, the question comes down to is what does the future of clinical trials uh, look like? You've spoken a lot and written a lot around the, the intelligent health consumer and they're very much part of the central hub of all that is in going to be in healthcare. But <clears throat> discovery, innovation is a core component of the way that we're gonna continue to build software as medical devices, new chemical you know, identities, biologics, et cetera. So we have these clinical trials, a lot of them have been done in person and we're now starting to move the needle on real world evidence and, and, and decentralization and hybrid trials. But you've also alluded to this idea of trials in silica. What is the clinical trials of the future gonna look like and how is Microsoft going to be involved in that? Well, there's certainly uh, better experts in clinical trials than I am, but again, I'd, I'd start by pointing to uh, the great work at places like Scripps Research Institute. And so as they, you know, uh, formulate these new approaches, they pilot it, then the adjacency is as they're doing that, uh, all of the other academic medical centers, researchers who can then pile onto that. Uh, we're seeing other things when it comes to essentially um, use of algorithms. So if, if someone's creating something that, that allows you to kind of, you know, do things as well, as simple as complex as if, if you're launching, you know, 10 clinical trials, uh, can use predictive capabilities to, you know, instead of waiting for the, you know, trial period to be 80% over to start looking at uh, effectiveness, you can start with a sample size, really predicting how 10 different trials will go, which ones need to be adjusted, which ones may be you come to a certain conclusion before you run the full gamut of that trial. Um, you know, beyond that, and it's probably another adjacency, um, you know, I, I was talking to uh, someone who's a chief data scientist with a major pharma and life science company. And, you know, the conversation basically went along the lines of, you know, going forward, um, you know, how does uh, pharma and life science go beyond what we would call monetizing molecules? where there are the drugs, and then you look at what are all the adjacent things when it comes to smart technology, wearables, um, you know, uh, IoT or edge technologies that really uh, enhance, amplify, leverage, uh, whether it's drug compliance, whether it's demonstrating drug effectiveness, or whether it's, you know, in, in the realm of diabetes of you've got the pharma side, but then you've got the monitoring side, you've got the management side when it comes to lifestyle. And bringing all that together is probably more of that continuum that's going to drive value than, than simply that let's monetize molecules going forward. I really love that. And I don't want this to become like a, a blockchain discussion, but it really does beg the question as we start to hear a lot around tokenization, Ethereum, um, you know, and, and again, all sorts of work around chain link, uh, Oracle networks, and, and those sorts of things is it you got does all the make... then. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I just love this kind of thing. So it really does beg the question about what does the future healthcare company look like? Is it built on specific drugs? So as we look at 
tokenizing. We may not no longer need to buy a stock for an entire company, but you can actually have you know people purchasing based on specific molecules, or like you said, all of these other extensions to that. And these contributors can be financial or people who work. So the ver so the concept of a company can vary from place to place and who's involved, who's contributing, and it could be on a drug by drug basis. I was curious uh, what your thoughts about this new tokenized world that we might be living in in the future. Yeah. Well, again, I, um, you know, anyone can kind of try and look down the road and give an opinion, I, I'll give mine. I mean, you know, starting off with, uh, you know, the whole area of, of precision medicine is a very popular topic. It's, it's a bit of a shiny object in, in some regards, but, you know, when you look at where we are, we're, we're very much in the infancy. When you look at where I think we'll be going in the next decade, much of that is driven by artificial intelligence. You know, I think we will get to the point where we have the ability to do quick mapping uh, where personalized medicine really does get down to the individual and, and the ability to, you know, almost have designer drugs that's specific to you and, and, and not you as whatever, you know, there's, there's a class of women who are 45, they've got certain makeups, maybe they've already been diagnosed with a very specific uh, breast malignancy, you know, that'll get uh, helped, but I believe we'll reach a point where there'll be things like testing that then allow you to, if, if there's a problem, if there's an issue, to truly have the approach, including, you know, the, the pharma side of your treatment be totally personalized to you as an individual. Uh, another quick example that I'm reminded of is uh, where uh, Microsoft is working with a really great company called Adaptive Biotechnologies out of Seattle. You know, we've heard about mapping, you know, uh, genomics for, you know, the last couple of decades. They're working to basically map the human immune system. And, and the work they're doing is just crazy smart, but the ability, imagine to um, at some point in the future, having a single blood test that, that taps into being able to map everything about your immune system uh, to both make predictions on your, your likelihood of certain things, as well as being able to handcraft solutions that absolutely are optimized to your immune system versus your partners or your kids. And I think that's where we're going. We, we see early innovative companies really pushing the boundaries and say, we're all early in the journey, but those are the kind of things that, that I think are going to come into play in the next decade. It's gonna be very interesting around workflow. And I know that you had alluded to that word and it was very much part of your book as well too around um, how we're going to operationalize this because this is a huge component because at the end of the day brains are lazy people like to get into automaticity they like to do what they already know and suddenly you throw some extra zinger in there and it's like how on earth is am I going to integrate this so interoperability is essential but more importantly bigger questions existential questions what is going to happen to radiologists what are what is going to happen to ophthalmologists we, see, we have seen recently as an example that Google has released that derm assist where you basically take some pictures of your skin condition and they're very much doing that sort of triage. So what is going to happen to the role of physicians or healthcare providers? Are they going to become just very fancy data scientists? Well, I, I think anyone who is ever... Um on the sharp end of the stick of being a doctor, being a nurse, or even being a patient knows that um, 
you know, the human element is hugely important. So, you know, to, to answer your question, and it's funny because radiologists always seem to take the heat first on this conversation, but so, so I was uh, getting ready to do a, a workshop. Uh, this was pre-COVID at the largest academic uh, children's facility in Canada. And it was the CEO and all the medical directors. And I was getting ready to get introduced. And, you know, as always, there was a, a table of all the medical directors who had already grabbed coffee and were just sitting around yucking it up before they introduced me. And I, I was sitting there as, as one of the medical directors turned to the head of radiology and said, have you, have you gotten your Uber uh, license yet? And, you know, they were razzing the head of radiology say, you know, this guy's talking about AI. You're going to probably be driving an Uber after a, a period of time. And, and, and to me, um, you know, for example, radiology is, is a great area. They're actually, um, as a specialty, innovating faster, farther than probably any other specialty. So to answer your question, there are certain things that AI does really well, better than humans. So pattern recognition, going through massive amounts of data to find trends. Um, but when you think about what uh, humans are good at, and particularly part of the care process, you know, it's reasoning, it's judgment, it's wisdom, it's creative problem solving. All of those things are, are the unique capabilities of humans. Uh, no AI can do that now, and my belief is no AI will be capable of that for decades to come. So it really is how we bring those things together, the best of AI getting in and behind the best of the human capabilities. So in the case of radiologists, or anyone dealing with imaging, that could be pathologists, that could be many others, you know, my ability to basically do pattern recognition, build that into uh, essentially creating intelligent images, which allows me then to um, have intelligence do pre-reads. So if there are a hundred images to go through um, and AI can, you know, surface those that need to be read first because there's a potential abnormality it, it allows radiologists to be more effective. It allows them to have better control of their time. And then if you really look at what radiologists do, people just stereotype they're you know, stuck in these little dark rooms reading images. They, they are probably one of the best, most important consultants to every other specialist when it comes to what that specialist is doing. So imagine they've got more time to be doing the consults, more time to actually spend with patients, more time to perhaps actually get home for dinner, which they often don't do. So. It's that combination of how do we bring in the best of AI and put it behind not just doctors, but anyone who's a knowledge worker. So that knowledge worker can be a doctor, a nurse, it can be the head of uh, RevCycle, it can be the person that's trying to figure out how to reduce denials or you know, any of a number of roles in, in pharma and life science. We're on the precipice of like a, a data, you know, a world of data. Data, as we've heard this over and over as a cliche, is the new gold. And so we've got these new data lakes and we're able to tap in and there's just data everywhere. People are wearing 24-hour glucose monitors and smartwatches and this app and that app and stuff is getting churned in and electronically transmitted into the electronic health record. So there's no shortage of this, of this data. So the question comes down to is how do we manage, how do we conduct knowledge management? It's one thing about getting zeros and ones and a whole slew of stuff, but who is curating this? How do we make it make sense to people? And what are these dashboards looking like? And I'm curious about what Microsoft is looking at doing to make these data lakes come alive. Yeah. 
that is probably one of the most pivotal questions for anyone in healthcare, particularly if you're a leader uh, and you have interest in saying, I want to use AI, but more importantly, I want to use AI at scale across an enterprise or across a division. So, so I'd, I'd back up and start with, uh, to put a finer point on what you just said. So there's one study that shows if you were a newly minted physician in 1950, you'd go your entire practice and career, 50 years before medical knowledge doubled. That same study uh, estimates that today, medical knowledge is doubling every 73 days. So think about that. You can be the best trained physician coming out of residency going into practice today, knowing that a couple of months from now, there'll be twice the amount of knowledge that you either have to deal with or you use as an opportunity to be better at whatever your specialty is. So that, that is many times as an advisor to big healthcare organizations, uh, leaders are kind of wringing their hands saying it's a problem. And I'd turn that around to say, what an incredible opportunity. I often in, in dealing with uh, health leaders, uh, they'll come back from a conference, they'll have read an article and I'll hear them say, well, data's the new currency in healthcare. And, and whenever I hear that, I chuckle because my next question to whoever said that is, if data's the new currency for healthcare, are you managing your data the same way you manage your finances? And usually there's a pause and then there's a chuckle. And then we can have the conversation about how, you know, data is the key uh, to driving transformation. It's the key to innovation. And yet today, whether you're a provider organization, a life science company, uh, most organizations are not equipped to, uh, you, you mentioned data lake. I take that a step farther to say, fundamentally, uh, transformation and, and agile transformation at scale is all about creating and managing a modern data state. Now that includes things like data lakes, it includes uh, other things where it allows for the provisioning and use of all types of data, not just the data we think of if you're a provider, it's my EMR data, it's my imaging data, all data inside, outside. Um, there was a great new report that just came out this week from Frost and Sullivan on the value of social determinants of health information. And the factoid that I was struck with is um, where they say non-medical factors impact 80% of all health outcomes. So think about that for a moment. Uh, if 80% uh, of healthcare outcomes are impacted by non-medical things, such as social determinants of health, your economics, where you live, um, other things, uh, and most organizations, when they're talking about their data estate are talking about the data that's kind of within their garden walls, what are the opportunities for those who not only get their house in order with a modern data estate to make better, more agile use of their data, but that data estate allows you in just any type of data that might be valuable in figuring out, again, I'm a pharma company. If I can do something with my drugs and, and marry that with some lifestyle factor, and get a multiple of, of beneficial outcomes that I can demonstrate, what's the value of that? Or, or the value uh, to a provider of looking at managing health, including many of those things as simple as food deserts, that if I can get a handle on that, I produce better health outcomes and chances are I'm doing that at a lower price point per consumer. It's absolutely brilliant and so incredibly essential. And so really, what Microsoft and companies like yourself are really ultimately trying to do is bring this, you know, bring this data into a place where there can be huge things done through population health management, predictive analytics, getting from a sickness 
care system to a wellness care system. Um, and I'm just kind of curious also as well around Microsoft's vision to tie people together, to increase the collaboration, the coordination of healthcare teams in a way that we've never done so before. So there's an inclusion of all ideas, all, uh, all thought processes and making this a lot more seamless. What is Microsoft doing in, on that level to, to ensure that we're delivering care in a way that um, that's a lot more seamless? Yeah, well, I mean, there we're doing a host of things. So starting really within the systems and, and how, you know, care teams work. So again, I'd, I'd come back to COVID where um, COVID produced a lot of good benefit as far as change. So, you know, I, as a data and AI guy, I'm always talking about predictive analytics and everything else. So let's, let's say we've done something really unusual with predictive capabilities. Uh, I have the ability to do something. Uh, I'm, I'm a physician specialist and I have the ability to make predictions about uh, either diagnoses or which uh, treatment is gonna produce the best outcomes. That's all great, but um, you know, everyone always talks about actionable insights in healthcare. Insights are only actionable if shared and, and collaborated with that full team working with a patient or population of patients. So things like, you know, COVID brought to the forefront a lot of the collaboration tools Microsoft has, like Microsoft Teams. We've got health and medical grade versions of that. You start looking at, uh, you know, jumping from uh, improving collaboration capabilities and the efficiency within care teams to then including um, the patients and the consumers. And we've got a lot of things like uh, dynamic CRM that really allows you to start personalizing, communicating, connecting with the consumer. And, you know, we talk a lot about improving collaboration among care teams. And, and to me, uh, that, that is great and we're making great progress. But, you know, again, looking ahead, uh, there's a certain percentage of the patient consumer population that, you know, they too want to be part of that collaboration. And our ability to bring all that together, not only to make it more efficient, but allow a physician, a consumer to be able to say, here are my preferences for how I wanna be involved in managing my health. And then when there's something wrong, so there's managing health, which is truly, you know, how do I maintain my health? And then when there's something that, that's not right, you know, how do I engage not just the care team, but I involve the individual consumer. And I do that on their terms, not just a generic, hey, here, here's the way we do it. And so we've got a lot of tools. We're, we're seeing a lot of interest and uptake based on what happened in the last year with COVID. Microsoft has done a brilliant job over the many, many years that it has been around in creating very elegant, simple solutions that can be applied across the board in all sorts of scenarios. So the tools are ubiquitous, but the use cases are you know, infinite. Healthcare is like a completely different animal. You know, you, you look at one state against another, you know, one country against another, it's, it's literally a kaleidoscope and a, and a mashup of all kinds of things happening. And so the, the ultimate question comes down to is, is there an elegant solution? Is there a patient journey that one can standardize so that the experience is consistent and, and, uh, and um, but at the same time unique but you know, what is that kind of magic formula that are people are looking at? I'm thinking about specifically institutions saying, yeah, AI mumble jumble, all that's great. But you know, how do I use this tool? Same thing with pharma. I wanna know how 
you know, all this data that's coming in, how do I determine what the, what, how I can predict how a physician is going to utilize my drug? What is the, the roadway or the map that Microsoft is, is creating in order to create the brilliant sort of easy solutions that, that you have, um, that you're so claimed, uh, for, you're claimed to fame for? Well, again, that's a, it's a simple yet complex question. So when I look at the vision, when I look at at least the trajectory that we're seeing, uh, the goal is to move towards what you just described, where uh, when we talk about, you know, personalized health, we're not talking about some broad brushstroke that, you know, every woman that fits this category gets treated the same way. And whether that's the clinical diagnosis and treatment process, or whether that's just how in the course of your interactions, um, just in life, um, you know, healthcare offers things that are personalized to the way you live, the things you care about. So that's happening. There's already technology I can I point to or talk about from Microsoft and others that, that empowers that. You know, the real issue comes back to, to me again, it's that um, what I call the leadership imperative of, you know, healthcare has run particularly in America a certain way. Uh, so if you're a provider org and, and much of that unfortunately is driven by the incentives created by, you know, how you're paid, how you make money. But if we look at the capabilities of technology to push us much closer to that um, individual experience uh, the technology exists. It is all about understanding, mapping, and changing everything from those clinical workflows to the consumer journey. And um, I, I had the opportunity to do a keynote with uh, someone else a couple of months ago, and it was all around the patient experience. And, um, you know, we, we titled uh, the talk, uh, to your point, um, you know, how to have a delightful patient experience. Because most of the time, if you talk to a patient about their patient experience, it's rare that the word delighted would get used. So there was one study last year from uh, Change Healthcare and Harris Polling Organization where they, they surveyed health consumers. There was a large uh, percentage of health consumers who said, when I have something that I need to approach the health system on, uh, finding, accessing, and paying for healthcare is such a hassle half of those who need service just don't do it because it's such a hassle. So imagine our ability to move from that to something that um, is a great experience, similar to you know, whatever it is you do um, online with something else, whether it's a retail experience, whether it's a banking experience. I mean, other industry have done much better at knowing how to delight the consumer. And, and just as those other industry have done it, we're capable of that the technology is there. It's about how do we rethink that patient journey and the experience we want to give them. How do we do that as well too in a world of such disparity? We have the haves and the have-nots. We have the underserved and underprivileged. We have people who have high have 5G and other people who don't even have a, a reliable internet connection. Telehealth is, is involved mm -hmm. in this, access to all sorts of other apps and tools and, uh, and methodologies. Um, in, in that comes the question of biased algorithms. Are we treating people the way they need to? Um, are these people involved and included? There's inclusion, diversity, and a whole slew of other questions around um, access, payments, reimbursement, affordability. How can Microsoft, 
and the teams around you help to start to solve or think through some of these really big complex questions? Well, first of all, I'm so glad you brought that up. It is such a huge and important and sometimes underrepresented issue. I mean, everyone gets very caught up in digital transformation of healthcare. The tools are there. Many things are happening that actually produce overall good. But to your point, if I can produce something that's measurably producing overall good, but there's variance in who it's producing good for, uh, is that okay? It, it can be technically um, you know, correct. It can be regulatorily and legally correct um, and still be unethical. So at Microsoft, I'm very proud of the fact we have led the way uh, for years in what we call responsible AI. So everything we do in developing products, uh, we, we put it through a rigorous set of, of AI principles and responsible AI principles. To your point on, on things like bias, um, we're seeing, and there's a really great uh, expose article in the New England Journal of Medicine from last year that shows um, you know, some of the biases we see in the real world are starting to cross over in the digital world of healthcare through algorithms. So um, you know, we're early in the journey, we have the ability to stop or mitigate those things. So it's things like um, when it comes to bias and algorithms, I don't believe that there's purposeful conscious bias, but I think there's a lot of unconscious bias. You know, bias comes into algorithms through things like uh, the data. So in America, healthcare, despite your opinion, is legally not a right. So what that means is those who are well insured, uh, their data is more representative, representative um, in, in the data used to create algorithms than someone who is uninsured, uh, which often then brings in issues of people of color, um, vulnerable populations. So there are tools, there are protocols to look at how we address those things but it starts with, first of all, creating awareness and then creating commitment to say, when we're doing good, we should look at doing good for all, not just for some. Uh, beyond that, and, and I'll bring it back to your earlier question. So last year, uh, COVID really produced great visibility and, and, and approved that telemedicine works. But increasingly, there's some data coming forward of, of what happened in the last year to say it produced great value, but then you start looking at it it's uneven. It produces great value if you're middle class and above. If you're in a rural area and you don't have connectivity, if you're an older American and uh, your digital literacy skills are low or non-existent, those are the things that create impediments where it benefits some, but not all. Almost all of this is solvable. It starts with awareness and then commitment to say, uh, we're going to focus on um, making sure these things benefit everyone, not just some. Huge. Absolutely love the fact that uh, you're, you're thinking about these things. Super, super important. I think the other, other issue that is incredibly important and in the hearts and minds of everybody, especially in light of the solar winds issue, what's happened recently with Microsoft as well, but so many other company, uh, you know, that recently would happen with the Colonial um, Pipeline as well is security then comes up the question of privacy and my health data. What should be shared versus not? What do I own? What can I make money on? How are people absorbing you know, my biometrics seamlessly you know, and ambiently? You know, how are people using software, facial recognition? And the list goes on. Is these are big chunky bioethical you know, privacy regulatory and legislation issues. 
are we working in legacy structures that are not gonna be able to solve this? Where are we going to be able to help define some of the answers to these issues? Well, once again, your question is very broad. We could spend an hour just teasing out some things. Um, you know, generally what I'd say is um, everyone's in evolution mode and, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of technology, in, including at Microsoft, where, um, you know, we develop it and, and the focus is, uh, is doing good in the world. And, and, and there are others who can take that and use it for nefarious purposes, use it for illegal purposes. And, you know, that's going to always exist. It's, it's more about how we evolve the technology, first of all, to be as bulletproof as we can make it when it comes to the technical side of security and compliance. You know, beyond that, the, the, the question of, um, you know, that classic case of who owns the data and how should it be used? And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I believe and Microsoft believes that, that data on you is your data. You should own it, you should control it. You should be the one that sets the parameters for how it's used. And, and that's where I believe if it's a group of consumers, uh, let, let's say you're, um, you know, you're a diabetic uh, and you have the ability to volunteer or opt into something where your data, e either retrospective or as it's coming through that monitoring device, you give permission for that to get put into a pool and used to try and define things that will produce a greater good for the population of diabetics, as well as eventually maybe you or your children. But those are things we have the ability to do uh, technically, um, legally, a, a lot of that's coming forward, particularly as you look at some of the um, laws and regulations in the, e ED, uh, the uh, EU with uh, GDPR. But I mean, those are the things that are infinitely manageable. And I believe most consumers, if faced with either a challenge themselves or an issue they have passion over, and they can see uh, common good by volunteering, opting in for their data to be used, I believe most reasonable consumers will do that. Yeah, and those that don't, don't want to, that's absolutely their right. And that's where it should absolutely be uh, protected and, and, and their wishes respected. Beautiful, beautifully said. We're, we're living in the time of immense discovery innovation. And it's just, it's literally a renaissance <laughs> of sorts. And many exciting things, which also can become or be viewed very dystopically. So, you know, one of the questions has to do with, you know, the curiosity around surveillance mm -hmm. and, you know, the big brother, like the Microsofts and the Googles and the, you know, the, the big five, the FANG, you know, group, um, getting into things like brain machine interfaces. We, you know, think about Elon Musk's Neuralink and, you know, we're talking about AR and VR and are we living in a, simulation and all, you know, and the questions go on and the conspiracy theories go on. How do companies like Microsoft stay real, stay agile, stay out of the, the theories that, you know, somebody is trying to get into their brain and mind read and take over the world? Like, how, how does Microsoft sort of stay, stay nimble? Yeah, well, uh, let me see if I can parse that one out. So, so first of all, I would say anyone who's interested, look closely at Microsoft's not only view, but approach to how we uh, manage data uh, and compare us to any other big uh, information technology company. I think you'd find we are uh, a leader, if not the leader in, in being mindful and respectful of everything you just said relative to individual rights, 
or the rights of populations of people. Um, number two, if you look closely at things like, um, again, back to, there's so many things AI is really good at, such as pattern recognition. So you look at that uh, applied to facial recognition. Uh, facial recognition can be really an outstanding uh, good cause. Uh, there, there was a company that just uh, was reporting out on how they're using facial recognition in infants um, to look for things like, um, you know, genomic uh, maladies or things caused by genetic uh, things. So, so the ability to use that to try and do an early diagnosis of a child and a potential life-threatening uh, illness is hugely important. You then look at how it's applied broadly to things like facial recognition with populations in public. And again, I would say uh, for any of those issues, look closely at Microsoft's position, not only stated, but how we act. And I'm very proud of the fact that we are, um, we're very mindful and responsible when it comes to our role, our position in, in how those things happen or don't happen. Um, you know, beyond that, again, uh, I, I look at uh, all the things that um, organizations are doing with our technology and data that they have a right to, to do good. Uh, we, we have a full program just to do a call out. Um, we have a whole program where we give millions of dollars away every year called AI for good. So if you just go out and type in any search engine, AI for good in Microsoft, you'll see all the great things we are doing to encourage this application, not for nefarious things, but for good things in health, in education, in the environment. And the key here is, um, you know, anyone that's pushing on any issues in that area, any of those areas can go out, submit an application and, and potentially get a grant from Microsoft to help further what you're doing using things like AI in the cloud. So. Um, I'm very proud of where we are. Uh, there are clearly issues there and we're constantly looking at what those issues are, how they're coming forward when it comes to some of the things you were mentioning that have been in the news and then what we do to address them. What are some of the high level partnerships you have created with Microsoft and some life science companies? Well, there are a number that I can't talk about because of NDAs, but um, you know, we've done a lot of work with groups like uh, Novartis. We are, um, you know, we've done a lot on things like COVID registries. Um, we've done a number of things through partners um, on clinical trials. But again, when you look at um, things like, um, you know, things as simple as the infusion of intelligence or any process in the um, pharma and life science area where if we were to go through a, a planning process for someone running a process and the ability to say, if there are three things you could predict to make something you're working on better, what would they be? And if you can define those things, then chances are Microsoft is working with uh, pharma companies to get in behind those things that those experts, uh, those specialists define as needed. Absolutely love it. And I just want to say, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have really enjoyed watching the transformation of Microsoft over the past five to 10 years and the brilliant um, work that's happening in healthcare. It's very exciting. And we're all kind of rooting for that. So for anybody who's listening, who are, who really enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to check out the show notes after we will have the contact details for Tom, Laurie, uh, if you're interested in partnerships, inquiring further about some of the really interesting that the work that they're doing in the life sciences, 
in the healthcare space, I invite you to please get in contact. Also, we invite you to take a look at impetusdigital.com. These are the kinds of conversations that we have in our platform with various stakeholders, payers, patients, allied healthcare providers, physicians, other people, to actually have an, a series of ongoing asynchronous and synchronous virtual communication sessions, moving agendas, policies, procedures, documents, ideas forward. And this is actually how work and progress happens. So please check out impetusdigital.com. We would love if you can like and subscribe to our channel and would really appreciate if you can leave a review on our podcast. Thank you everybody for your time today. I really appreciate this fabulous discussion, Tom, and the wonderful work that is happening at Microsoft and wishing you a wonderful day ahead. Thank you for listening to this Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Impetus Digital are the business-to-business virtual engagement experts and provide immersive virtual collaboration and communication solutions for advisory boards, medical education meetings, events, conferences, and projects worldwide, all delivered with our award-winning white glove service. Visit us at impetusdigital.com or book a demo at meetwithimpetus.com to find out more and visit us on our LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube channel to see other inspiring conversations for you to share with your network.